This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan. And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing using naltrexone for alcohol use disorder in sexual and gender minority men. How are you doing today, Sonia? Doing really well. How are you doing, John? Good. Anything exciting going on this week? Well, two things I wanted to share with our listeners. I am excited about going to ASAM in a few weeks. It's in Washington, D.C., which is right in our backyard. I'm hoping we'll see some cherry blossoms because it's spring now, and I hope to learn a lot about addiction medicine. So I'm just excited about that conference, and I hope we'll see some of our listeners. The other thing I wanted to tell people about that I'm super excited is that there is new CDC overdose data that shows that for the past seven months of rolling 12-month overdose data, there has either been a flattening or a decrease in the number of overdose deaths, which is amazing because, as we've talked about before, the overdose death rate has done nothing but go up over the past decades. So for the 12 months ending in March 2022, so about a year ago, there were about 110,000 overdose deaths. For the 12 months ending in October 2022, which was seven months later, there were 107,000 overdose deaths. So in those seven months from last March to last October, which is the most recent data that we have, there was a 2.4% decrease in overdose deaths in the U.S. It's kind of sad that it was only a 2.4% decrease, but it is so much better than the continued increase. And I'm just really happy about that. I'm hoping that it is a trend that will continue. I'm a little anxious that it's just a blip, like a correction for the extremely high number of overdoses we saw in the pandemic when so many people lost access to their addiction treatment along with many other things. But I'm just really hoping the trend will continue. So John, is there anything you want to share with our listeners about addiction medicine? Yes. Only one thing I wanted to bring up today. Um, I saw this article in the Los Angeles Times And it was talking about cigarette um, bans in California, or at least proposals for cigarette bans. One thing that happened last year is that New Zealand has passed a law, and it's actually being upheld, where they're banning all cigarettes for anyone born after January 1st, uh, 2009. So basically, they're essentially phasing out tobacco use or the legality of tobacco use. So there can't be kind of new smokers in the country. And California is actually kind of in the process of trying to insinuate a similar process that would kind of hopefully come into effect January 1st, 2017. Um, They do think that they could get this possibly pushed through their legislation. It's interesting. They've made it very clear that they're not touching marijuana. So for some reason, you can still smoke marijuana. That will be totally perfectly acceptable. Just tobacco will be uh, removed from something that you can do as a 17 or 18 year old but marijuana is still okay. And the one thing it's interesting, they're fighting over the amount of of money that they're going to lose. So apparently they said about $1.5 billion in in 2021, just from uh, taxation on tobacco related products in California. And that, you know, can they really afford to lose that income? Although I would argue we get an economist or a medical economist to come up and say that, you know, that's probably related to tobacco related expenses and healthcare, probably similar figures, if not more. So I hate telling people what to do, but I think it is interesting that we like how we're going to change this kind of moving forward. And it certainly seems like that, especially the the current system of just kind of taxing the heck out of tobacco. It really is more so a tax on kind of the poor and uneducated, not necessarily something that seems kind of equitable or just. What do you think, Sonia? Well, it's a really interesting way to 
reduce smoking. It's not something I thought about as an option. And, you know, I don't have a lot redeeming to say about tobacco use. So I'm all for whatever reduces tobacco use. I think it's interesting. Sure. Why not? Well, I guess we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I'll be interested to see. I mean, I think like when they've tried to ban other things, you know, notably alcohol, there's been a development of a big black market. And, you know, our our policy of making smoking inconvenient and expensive, like you said, it does disproportionately affect people of lower income, but it has significantly reduced smoking. Those have been the most effective interventions. So if you can't even buy cigarettes anymore, I'm sure it will help cut down on smoking some. All right. So why don't you tell us about the article this week, Sonia? So this article is really good. It got a lot of buzz. It was even profiled in the New York Times, and that's actually where I first heard about it. The title is Targeted Oral Naltrexone for Mild to Moderate Alcohol Use Disorder Among Sexual and Gender Minority Men, and it's a randomized trial. It was published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, December 2022. Now, alcohol use disorder is very common in the U.S., but only a small minority of people with problematic alcohol use seek treatment. In the U.S., recently we've seen an increase in alcohol-related deaths. There's about 140,000 alcohol-related deaths annually, and fewer than 10% of patients with alcohol use disorder in the United States received medication to treat it, despite medications being relatively effective, tolerable, and affordable. Also, another interesting thing about treating alcohol use disorder is that many of our treatments are focused on people with more serious alcohol use disorder who are really not able to moderate their drinking at all. And total abstinence from alcohol is the goal. So many of our treatments are to help people with total abstinence. But there are many more people who drink alcohol in unsafe ways and would prefer to cut down, but aren't really interested in plans committing them to total abstinence. And one of these patterns of unhealthy drinking is what we call binge drinking. So binge drinking is what this article is about. It's not about people with heavy daily drinking. It's about binge drinking, which is sometimes called heavy episodic drinking. And it's defined as four or more drinks on one occasion for women or five or more drinks on one occasion for men. So about one in six adults in the U.S. binge drinks with 17% binging within the past 30 days. So within the past month, the vast majority of people who binge drink do not meet criteria for severe alcohol use disorder. And this is relevant because many of the studies of naltrexone, which this is a study of naltrexone, many of the other studies for naltrexone for alcohol use disorder only include people with severe alcohol use disorder. However, many of the harms of alcohol use can be attributed to people who have either mild or moderate alcohol use disorder, and especially people who binge drink. And that includes things like traffic accidents and risky sexual behavior. So, John, do you talk about binge drinking with your patients when you ask them about alcohol use? Yeah, it's interesting. I I often do talk to patients, especially have a younger male population, I think, than the average family physician. And certainly alcohol use comes up all the time in terms of our yearly physical. It is interesting. This is a very kind of like cultural thing. It's almost kind of implied that any drinking is binge drinking in the United States. It seems like there's very few people that tell me that at least in their early years that they're they're drinking in moderation a drink or two here it seems to be that's the consumption patterns on friday saturday night football games basketball games kind of sporting events barbecues it seems like it's kind of these all or none phenomenons at least culturally here how about you what do you think when and what do you talk to your patients about yeah when i ask people about their alcohol use which i try to do at their annual checkups i do say 
on any given occasion, how many drinks do you have? So I ask about binge drinking when I'm asking questions about how much alcohol use people have. And I do tell them that more than five for men or four for women is considered a binge and is definitely unhealthy. So I encourage people to limit their number so that it doesn't meet that binge drinking criteria. And like you said, a lot of people are very surprised to hear that I would consider that unhealthy. I was speaking with a patient recently who habitually drinks eight to 10 drinks on weekends, or I don't know, I think the occasion is just that it's a weekend. But um, that patient was not at all concerned about that drinking pattern and was surprised to hear that I thought that that was excessive. So I definitely address it with people, but I have never prescribed medication specifically just for this pattern of drinking. So that's why this article was interesting to me. I want to give our listeners a few facts about naltrexone, which is a medication that is used in this study. So it's a mu opioid antagonist, and it reduces the dopamine release following alcohol intake and thus reduces the pleasure from drinking. Naltrexone is well known as a treatment for alcohol use disorder. There have been over 50 trials, and most of them included patients, like we said, with severe alcohol use disorder, not mild to moderate alcohol use disorder. Naltrexone can be given as a 28-day depot injection, you know, brand name Vivitrol, or given as a pill that's dosed daily. Daily adherence, though, can be low with that pill because patients actually avoid the medication on days when they plan to drink. The number needed to treat for daily naltrexone started after a period of abstinence because theoretically you're supposed to be abstinent from alcohol for a few days before you start naltrexone. To prevent one person from returning to any drinking is 16. So not great. You have to give the medicine to 16 people to keep one person from drinking at all. The number needed to treat to prevent one person from returning to heavy drinking is about 20. So it is technically effective, but not super effective. This article profiles a different strategy for oral naltrexone, which is targeted naltrexone. So they gave the naltrexone only in anticipation of heavy drinking or when the patients had cravings. And that strategy has shown efficacy in other studies, smaller studies than this one. So before we go any further, John, what's been your experience with using oral naltrexone or injectable naltrexone for alcohol use disorder? Um, I think kind of like a, from an efficacy standpoint, I often tell patients that it's not going to promote like an absence only approach for most patients. I, I do feel that um, not every patient reports significant improvements. I do think that some patients will tell me that kind of their number of, of heavy drinking days does decrease. I normally kind of basically prescribe it orally fixed for the most part. I do offer the IM injection, although local site reaction often kind of limits that. I think at some point in treatment, someone will complain about like a local site irritation and they don't want to be uh, continue the medication. I do read up to date just like anyone else. And when I was kind of confirming dose one time in a patient with kind of liver dysfunction to see what the cutoff LFTs were, they talked about this kind of basically basal bolus naltrexone dosing as an alternative where people take higher doses on the weekends or on Friday nights. I've never done that, although I do think that's an interesting concept. How about you? Yeah, I don't have a lot of luck with oral naltrexone. I have patients who want to try it, which is fine, but I have very few patients who continue it long term. I have better luck with the injectable naltrexone. I have quite a good sized cohort of patients using that medication. But the problem with the oral naltrexone is I really do find that people avoid taking it when they want to drink. And so using it in this targeted way is sort of a shift in mindset. Instead of worrying about it every day and forcing yourself to take it when you really want to drink, 
you only take it when you feel those urges to drink. And so it's really just kind of a shift in mindset that I think is very compelling and could work for some people. Let's get to the details. So first, the clinical question. Just to summarize, the clinical question in this study is, does taking targeted naltrexone when you feel alcohol cravings or anticipate binge drinking lead to reduced alcohol use? That's the question. So who is in this study? It included men age 18 to 70, so adult men. They were having anal intercourse while under the influence of alcohol in the past three months. They had at least one binge drinking episode per week over the past three months. They could be diagnosed with mild to moderate alcohol use disorder, and they were interested in reducing their alcohol consumption. They also had to have a normal CBC and CMP. That's just part of being eligible to get the naltrexone. So again, there was no requirement that they desire total abstinence, just that they desire to reduce their alcohol consumption. They excluded people who were not eligible to take naltrexone or who had acute or serious medical or psychiatric illnesses. They also, of course, excluded people with opioid use disorder or opioids in their urine test or just not able to participate in the study for any reason. So who ended up in this study? The demographics were men, of course. This was a study of men. It was done in San Francisco between 2015 and 2020, so it encompassed some time during the pandemic. The median age was 37. 54% were white and 14% were black. 119 were cisgender men, and there was one transgender man in this study. 13% ever had been hospitalized for an alcohol problem. 16% ever had received treatment for alcohol use. So 84% had never received any treatment at all for alcohol use disorder. 91% had health insurance. 85% had a regular primary care healthcare provider. And 26% were HIV positive. So this is a population, again, San Francisco, men in their late 30s, almost all insured, regular doctor, not really getting treatment for alcohol use disorder. So that's the population in this study. The intervention was this targeted naltrexone. You got 50 milligrams that you could take. You took one pill during periods of alcohol cravings or when binge drinking was anticipated. So if you thought you might go out that day, you could take the naltrexone before you went out. They did labs at weeks four, eight, and 12, and they got 12 weekly medication management counseling sessions just to see how the medication was going. Did they have any questions? It was compared to a similar protocol, but with placebo instead of active naltrexone. And the outcomes were basically looking at alcohol use. So the primary outcomes were all related to binge drinking intensity. They measured that in a bunch of different ways. So number of drinks in the past 30 days. Did you have any binge drinking in the past week? How many binge drinking days did you have in the past week? How many drinking days did you have in the past week? you know, asking the same question over and over about how much you drank. They also, though, which I'm really happy about, included some objective measures of drinking, including alcohol biomarkers. So they looked at ethylglucuronide in the urine and phosphatidylethanol in blood. So those are both byproducts of alcohol metabolism, and they'll detect alcohol use for um, ethylglucuronide over the past one to three days. And for the phosphatidylethanol, it detects alcohol use over two to three weeks. And so these both were more objective measures of drinking, and I'm glad that they included them in the study. They also had some secondary outcomes, including patient satisfaction with the protocol and medications, cravings, hazardous alcohol use, risky sexual behavior, mental health. And just to note here, one of the main hypotheses of this study was that 
the naltrexone would reduce risky sexual behavior associated with binge drinking. And having sex while binge drinking was one of the criteria for inclusion in this study. But in the end, I don't think it made a lot of difference for that outcome. So they kind of de-emphasized it in the writing of this paper. But that's why those kind of sexual behavior outcomes were included. That was one of their initial interests. So John, what did you think of the clinical question? I thought it was really interesting. I, I like the idea of kind of the one-to-one randomization to look at this to see basically the effect of the two. I think it, you're right. It was interesting. They, they kind of talk a lot about selection based upon kind of like sexual preferences and activity. Although, you know, I I'm, I'm appreciate the fact you kind of explained why that was kind of de-emphasized as you kind of go through the study. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's something that, you know, could be very useful in the right setting for a lot of uh, patients potentially. So let's talk about strengths and weaknesses. So this study had a lot of strengths. The sample size was good, 120 men definitely enough to adequately power it. It was randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled, and the study passed the blinding assessment, meaning that the participants could not guess what their study assignment was. Both groups were similar at the start of the trial across all characteristics measured. Both groups received equal interventions other than the study medication. I thought the 12-week duration was long enough to see efficacy. And they also included, interestingly, a six-month follow-up. So they saw whether the effects in the initial three months endured at six months. They also did a strategy to measure adherence because, remember, this is ad-needed dosing. So there was no rule about how often you were supposed to take the medication. They used an electronic cap system, an electronic bottle. So it automatically determined how often you opened the bottle. And they used that as a count for how often you use the medication. They included, like I said before, objective measures of alcohol use in both blood and urine tests, which I thought was great. They had great follow-up. 93% of the participants completed the trial. They completed overall 85% of the weekly follow-up visits. And 84% of people completed the six-month post-treatment visit with only nine of 124 patients lost to follow-up. They did an intention-to-treat analysis, which included the participants lost to follow-up. They did per-protocol analyses for participants with the medication use above the medium, and they did several sensitivity analyses, including one where the significant p-values were slightly reduced to account for multiple hypothesis testing. The missing lab values were imputed as positive, which was good, and they reported adverse events. And finally, it was funded by grants from the NIH and the NIAA, and I think that funding was unlikely to cause bias. So a lot of good things about this study design. There were a few weaknesses I came up with. The first is they tried to motivate this study as a way to reduce risky sexual behavior in a population with higher than average rates of HIV. But I think in the end, that angle didn't add much. And I think the study would have been cleaner, just kind of leaving that out altogether. And then they looked at alcohol use They looked at risky sex, but they didn't look at any of the other adverse outcomes related to binge drinking, like actually getting a sexually transmitted infection, having a car accident, getting in legal trouble, ending up in the hospital, getting arrested. So the outcomes were less clinically relevant than they could have been. The outcome was just about the drinking, not about the adverse effects of drinking. So, John, did you think that this was a valid study? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, certainly like asked a good question. I think it had a large enough sample size. I think they did a good job kind of blinding the two groups. I like some of the things about objectifying the data, both with the serology, but also with the urine testing for alcohol consumption. 
I thought that the electronic pill counter was really cool too. I, I haven't seen that kind of employed kind of in this type of setting before. I thought that kind of added a nice additional way of letting us know about compliance for patients. All right. So we understand the clinical question. We think this is a valid study. Now we can talk about the results. So just so we don't forget, let me summarize what we have so far. This was a randomized placebo-controlled trial of whether targeted naltrexone taken when one feels cravings or anticipates binge drinking will reduce alcohol use. So first set of results is about how the patients did in this study. 84% of the participants were satisfied with their study experience, which to me indicated very few adverse effects from the medication. They reported taking the study medication 74% of the days they craved alcohol or anticipated a heavy drinking session. So again, this indicates that they found the treatment to be helpful or at least not harmful. They were willing to continue with it, even though it was as needed. You could decide for yourself how often to take the medication. The number of doses of study medication taken by the participants was the same in both groups. So on average, each person took about 32 doses in 12 weeks, which averaged out to about 2.5 days per week that they took the study medication. So basically, people tolerated the medication well, they stuck with the study, they kept taking the study med and placebo at the same rate. So patients did pretty well with it. Next, let's talk about the primary outcomes, which have to do with drinking. So to summarize, targeted naltrexone reduced drinking. I'm going to present the data the same way that it was presented in the paper, which is in terms of number needed to treat. So the number needed to treat is two to prevent a binge drinking day each week. So for two people who got targeted naltrexone, there would be one less binge drinking day. So on average, one person did not have fewer binge drinking days and the other person had one less binge drinking day per week. The number needed to treat is 7.4 to prevent binge drinking for an entire week, so no binge drinking at all. And the number needed to treat is 5.7 to prevent 10 additional drinks per month. And like we've talked about on previous episodes, the harm from alcohol use is cumulative and it is based on the number of drinks you have on average per week. So if you can prevent 10 additional drinks per month, which averages out to, you know, two to three per week, you do reduce the harms from alcohol. The intervention did not reduce the total number of drinking days or the presence of the alcohol biomarkers, although it did reduce their concentration. So on average, the participants went out, they had the same number of alcohol episodes, so they drank the same number of days, but on average, they drank less on those days, and there was fewer binge drinking, which was kind of the goal of the study. These same results were seen in the per-protocol analysis among people who took the study medication above average amount. And at six months post-treatment, the effects continued to be durable. The naltrexone group had fewer number of drinks in the past month, fewer number of binge drinking days in the past week, and less binge drinking overall in the past week, even six months after the start of the study, three months after they had been done with the study protocol. The paper didn't say if the participants were allowed to go and get more medicine if they wanted to between weeks 12 and weeks 24, or if the reduced drinking was entirely due to new habits that were built up during this study. But yeah, the effect endured at six months. As far as adverse events goes, they reported two serious adverse events, 
neither related to naltrexone. One was a bowel obstruction and one was a soft tissue infection. Some of the more common adverse events were nausea, hyperglycemia, headaches, elevated LFTs, rash, and diarrhea. Headache and nausea are both known side effects of naltrexone, and they were the most common adverse outcomes, with 14 people having nausea of the 60 and 7 having headache of the 60 in the naltrexone group. So to summarize the results, and to quote the authors, I'll quote the authors here because they said it well, targeted naltrexone significantly reduced drinking outcomes among sexual and gender minority men with mild to moderate alcohol use disorder during treatment with sustained effects at six months post-treatment. The study supports the use of a targeted dosing approach for naltrexone in sexual and gender minority men who are interested in reducing their heavy alcohol consumption on an event-driven as-needed basis. So John, what did you think about the results? I think that it was interesting, although this kind of tracks with similar information before, kind of about the medication. I'll be honest with you, like some of these numbered need to treats are higher than I've seen for other studies. Um, but certainly it sounds like that this is a medication kind of often as I'll I'll phrase this to people that kind of mitigates heavy drinking, but does not really kind of eliminate drinking. And that, that necessarily isn't a bad thing for everyone. I think a lot of patients that come to us kind of with alcohol use issues or binge drinking issues, they don't, most of them don't desire complete cessation. They desire control or, or decreasing the, the consequences of that. So I think it has a use. And I definitely think that it was interesting. It's just kind of one more kind of way that we can use it. Yeah, I think so too. And the number needed to treat was not super low, but actually it was better than some of the studies of daily naltrexone. So for this outcome, and of course those looked at different outcomes, they looked at more like total abstinence, but it wasn't a bad number needed to treat, certainly low enough that I'd be comfortable trying it with patients and saying that this is something that might work. So in terms of whether I will use this study in patient care, whether it will change my practice, I definitely will use it. In fact, I already used it yesterday in the office suggesting this pattern for a patient who was interested in cutting down on drinking. So in my practice, I don't have a large population of sexual and gender minority men, but I feel that the results in this study could be extrapolated to other people. And I do have quite a few patients who binge drink. As we talked about earlier, it's a common alcohol use pattern in our area. The treatment is feasible in my setting. I can prescribe naltrexone, no problem. The benefits to the treatment are reduced alcohol use, reduced binge drinking, and reduced cravings. The harms were the side effects of naltrexone, like headaches and nausea. I definitely think the benefits are worth the harms. And the number needed to treat of two to seven, depending on the specific outcome, that's a pretty good number needed to treat. So definitely worth trying. In terms of whether these outcomes are relevant to my patients, they considered the outcome of reduced drinking, which is what a lot of people say they want, but they didn't show any reduced adverse events from alcohol use, which in the end is really what people are looking for. Like if people could drink as much as they want and not experience any adverse outcomes, they'd be happy. The study didn't really look at those outcomes. It just looked at the alcohol itself. So in the past, I personally have only offered medication for people with moderate to severe alcohol use disorder, daily drinking, a strong desire to be abstinent, stop drinking altogether. Um, I have never used as needed dosing of naltrexone for people who have binge drinking and want to cut down. So from now on, I definitely will offer as needed naltrexone for patients with binge drinking who want to cut down, along with other medication options like the injectable naltrexone or a campersate. So I'm going to add this to my toolbox. It's not going to work for everybody. It's not appropriate for every patient, but I definitely think there are some people who would want to try this. So John, do you think you'll be using this dosing protocol in practice? I think I might try it for a couple people. 
I think that um, in the past, I have not kind of just restricted the use of naltrexone to patients with more moderate to severe alcohol use. I've had other people just tell me that they're just tired. And I had a patient actually maybe a month ago, and she was just saying that she feels dependent on it. She drinks four to five drinks every night or four drinks every night. So not a terribly high amount um, compared to some of the other patients I hear, but she felt that she was at a point that she didn't want to be drinking like that every day. Um, and we started her on the oral naltrexone and she now just drinks a single drink at night. So she's really happy with that improvement. And she had none of the criteria of alcohol use disorder. It didn't impact her life. She didn't have any failure to do any home obligations, no legal consequences. It was more just kind of an alcohol dependence she had. I also like the idea because a lot of times people in the oral naltrexone will tell me about the nausea that they don't kind of appreciate as a side effect. So I think if you're only getting nausea a couple days a week when you take it on at-risk moments versus taking it every day, I think the likelihood of them using that longer would be more appropriate and might help them out. Well, thanks for that interesting article, Sonia. We had one talkback comment. Um, Dr. Tim Roberts tweeted us a picture of his dog and said, walking, enjoying the daffodils and listening to a prior episode of Addiction Medicine Journal Club. He also said, enjoyed the talk about feasibility of hep C treatment, even a population with many challenges. And he gave us an important reminder, which is that we forgot to put the reference for the awesome HCB education modules from the University of Washington and hepatitis C online in our show notes for episode 18. Uh, we did correct the show notes to um, attend that, and we appreciate Dr. Roberts's um, diligence. I, I think we might have a part-time job for you at some point if you kind of keep us honest here with our little mistakes. So we appreciate that so much. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Video production by Paul Kennedy. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a good day.